0: Good morning, a little chilly out there, hope you have your overcoat, but surely it'll warm up today as we go on. Well, let's uh, warm our hearts up by looking at the Bible today and uh, we want to turn to Romans chapter 8 and you notice we're slowing down and the reason is there is so much packed into a few verses that we've got to study uh, at a more deliberate pace. Uh, and I think you'll see why as we study together Uh, let's look at Romans 8 and of course you remember that here we've seen that Paul shows us the way of the spirit we cannot be sanctified by using the old method of moral reformation trying to look at the law and by our own strength keeping the law we have to look to the spirit (coughs) and Paul has been teaching us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives how we live that out he's going to conclude his discussion in Romans 8. We're going to get to just part of it today. But he'll show us the ministry of the Spirit in in praying for us. We need help in praying for for ourselves. And then the ministry of the Spirit in convincing of the things convincing us of the things that have been revealed. So that we actually believe them with all of our hearts live in the light of them and put them into practice. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at Romans 8. Beginning with verse 26 and reading through verse 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There was a verse that I learned early on after my conversion. I guess maybe our pastor preached on it some Sunday. But it's that famous Deuteronomy 29 29. For those of you, who were with us when we studied Deuteronomy. We, of course, took a good look at that verse. And the verse says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So there are some things that are for him to know and for us not to know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey as law. The things that are revealed belong to us and the generations after us that we may obey what we hear. So we have to know what we don't know and we have to know what we know. And we have to be content with not knowing what only God knows and we have to be responsible for what God has allowed us to know. Mike Stokey, uh, just the other day, noticing the title of the Amen uh, study for today, gave me this article about uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, and you remember how he put it, he wrote, there are no known knowns, there are known unknowns. There are unknown unknowns, but there are also unknown knowns. That is to say, things that you think you know that turns out you did not know. Things that you possibly may know that you don't know you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep it a little simpler. There are things that we don't know, and there are things that we know. But what Rumsfeld is saying is that there are some things that we don't know that we don't know we don't know. That's that's dangerous. The things that you don't know, you don't know. But then there are some things that we thought we knew that we really don't know. That's dangerous too. You thought you knew that, but you really don't know it. What the apostle is going to show us is some things that we know we don't know and some things that we know that we know. So using Rumsfeld uh, Department of Defense language, that's <laughs> government after all, uh, we can simplify it into what the Bible is showing us here. And the Spirit helps us in both. The Spirit of God, first of all, helps us with the things that we don't know. There are some things we don't know. And notice, first of all, verse 26, that we, we don't know how to pray for ourselves. We really don't. We, all we know how to pray for is what we think will relieve our pain or our discomfort. We know how to pray for that. Lord, please take care of this sprained ankle I've got or mend this bone I just broke or help me with my relationship with my wife. Or we, we know how to pray for the relief of the pain that we're experiencing in the short run. But we really don't even know how to pray for things that are really in our best interest. Just like a five-year-old doesn't really know what's in his interest. His father and mother have to show him and guide him along the way. So we're just like that, like little children who don't even know how to pray for ourselves. And Paul's making this point. So what? The father does know how you need to be prayed for. And when he sent his spirit in fullness on Pentecost Sunday to fill us, his Holy Spirit fills us teaches us how to pray so that we learn by the Holy Spirit how better to pray for ourselves. But even beyond that, the Holy Spirit himself, God, is praying for us. Get a load of that. Not only is he the one to whom we pray, he's the one who prays. You know, I I remember reading years ago about a, a German soldier who was on the eastern front against the Soviet Union and he, uh, he w- had a few moments to write a note to his pastor who happened to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he wrote to his young pastor and said, you know, I don't, even, I don't even have time to pray. We're just, we're fighting all day. We're marching all day. We're exhausted at night. You know, we're in 12 inches of snow trying to survive, you know, to avoid frostbite. We're just, it's just one thing after another. I just, my spiritual life has just been shot to smithereens. He said, I can't even even pray. And one thing that Bonhoeffer wrote back to him was, he said, dear brother, remember when you can't pray, God's praying for you. And brothers, you need to remember that. When you you just go dumb, you just don't know what to say. You don't know how to pray, you're just exhausted. You're just at the end of your rope. You need to remember something very important. Prayers for you don't cease. Because God himself is praying. And look, look how the Spirit's praying. When we do not know how to pray for, uh, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. This is just an amazing ministry of the Spirit. He prays for us. Now look at how he prays. With groanings too deep for words. Now we had read previously that we groan. That we groan in travail as in childbirth in anticipation of another day when all will be made right before us. So we're in between the ages and we groan in travail. Okay, so we know we groan. And we made the statement last week, I think, that when we just are before the Lord, we just groan. He knows how to interpret the groan. We may not be able to put words to it, but he understands the meaning of the groan. These inarticulate, childlike utterings our prayers to him, and he, he gets it. He knows exactly what we mean, even if we don't know what we mean. But Paul goes beyond that. He says not only does he interpret your groanings, he himself groans for you. This is an amazing thing, this deep passion that God has for us so that he even, <clears throat> he even takes up our side of the equation and prays with and for us. It's an amazing thing. We don't know how to pray for ourselves. But don't be in despair. He does. Now, notice in verse 27b, we don't know the secret plans of God. We don't know that. We don't know future history. The only future history we know is future history that's been revealed in the Scriptures. So if it's revealed there, if we're told that something's going to happen by the Word of God, we know it's going to happen. That's all the future history we know everything else is completely hidden to us. We do not know the decrees of God. We know some of them. We know the ones that are revealed. We also know what our history past uh, that's recorded in the books is about. We understand about our past. It's recorded in history. Sometimes we saw some of that history ourselves, so we know something about history past. But we don't know history future, the decrees of God, are what's going to happen. And those who think they do, of course, are violating even the commandments of God, not to speculate. So we have to know what we don't know, and we don't know the secret plans of God. But look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit himself does know the future. He is God. He knows everything about us and about our future, about where our lives are going. And he's the one interceding for us. And he intercedes for us in accord with the plan of God. He intercedes for us in ways that we can't even intercede for ourselves because we don't know better. This is the kind of prayer ministry that God opens up for you. Now, if that leads you to lethargy, you've not understood a thing I said. Because What we're doing when we pray, we are entering into fellowship and partnership with the Holy Spirit of God in praying for ourselves to be useful in His kingdom and for for Him to bring His will on earth as it is in heaven. We are enjoying the fellowship and the partnership and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is what it means to pray in the Spirit, is to pray with complete dependence upon Him. We're to live every day of our lives in complete dependence upon Him, knowing that the things that are really important in this life and the tasks for us that are the most important tasks, we cannot carry them out. We're incompetent. Unless God works through us, the most important things we have to do cannot be done. And we pray the same way. So when we're praying, we're praying not only with a sense of dependence upon Him for the outcome, We're actually praying with a sense of dependence upon Him giving us the things to pray for. So, gentlemen, as you're praying, practice this. Practice leaning on Him even as you pray for Him to guide your prayers. So that even before you articulate your prayer, you can say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to pray in accord with the will of God. Pray as you would have me pray. In other words, you're always a child and always a student asking the Holy Spirit to teach you to pray. Now, the Holy Spirit has revealed the Bible. That's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has given us certain prayers and given us patterns of prayer. And Jesus himself said, when you pray, pray like this. And he gave us the Lord's prayer. So we have lots of helps and guides in the book of the Spirit, in the Bible. But in an existential sense, an experiential sense, right now in the present, we're leaning upon the Spirit to guide our prayers. That's the way we pray in the Spirit. It's, there's a very conscious awareness of His presence and of His empowering help in the prayer life of the saints. So, prayer is a very special gift. It's a very sacred exercise and it's something that we must depend upon the Holy Spirit to accomplish. So, you don't have to worry about how fancy your vocabulary is. Vocabulary is not the point. Getting just the right syntax is not the point. Praying an impressive prayer is not the point. The point is praying by the power of the Holy Spirit and asking Him to guide you in those prayers. And you see that we have this because there's so many things that we don't know. But we don't have to worry about it because we lean upon the Holy Spirit. Now, as we turn to verses 28 through 30, <clears> room <throat> number number two, we come to some things that we do know. And to use Rumsfeld's language... These are known knowns. These are not unknown knowns. These are not things that we think we know that we don't really know. No, these are things that we think we know and we really do know them. And the Apostle Paul pauses here because he's making a little transition to go from the ministry of the Spirit and helping us in our weakness to show us the ministry of the Spirit to reveal to us things that we know that give us the extraordinary confidence of a Christian man. You want to know where our confidence comes from? Not in our abilities or our natural strengths or our good looks or our charm or our rearing or our education or our degrees or our money or our prestige or positions. Our confidence comes from our relationship with God. And Paul is saying the Spirit has revealed this to you. This is something you know. This is something you hang your hat on. and It absolutely changes your life. So that by the time you get to Romans eight, he's saying there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are His. That's your, that's a stake in the ground. That's something that you know. That's a known known. Now he has to work this out over several verses because there's so many aspects of it, so many things that we're to contemplate about what we really know and how we apply it to our lives. So. Let's consider this, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. These are the things that are revealed and that are up for us and our sons and daughters for the succeeding generations to believe and to put into practice. Now, the first thing he says in verse 28, we know all things work together for the good. He says, and we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, let's break this down, and first of all, notice this. God is sovereign over all things. It's God who is working together all things, all things, every blade of grass, every falling leaf, every tadpole in the pond, every human being, every hair on your head, everything. He is sovereign over all things, and I put here in parenthesis, including evil including evil. Now, <clears throat> if you'll look at the Westminster Confession of Faith below or on your paper, you will see how the Westminster Divines put it, and I think this is most helpful. They say, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely, that is, without any pressure on him from the outside, without any influence from the outside, just freely, and then unchangeably, So he doesn't change his mind like you and I do, unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now let's deal with that first. You see there are three qualifications there. He's not the author of sin. He does no violence to the will of the creatures, and he uh, does not uh, destroy the liberty or contingency of second causes. Now, let's look at this first one God is not the author of sin. So, if you understand God's ordination of everything that comes to pass means that God is the author of evil, you've misunderstood the doctrine of the foreordination of all things, of the doctrine of predestination, because he's not responsible for evil. Uh, Habakkuk says um, God is so holy that he cannot even look upon wrong. He cannot tolerate evil. His eyes are too pure, he says, to even look upon wrong. So God is not the author of evil. So you say, well, who is? Great question. I don't know. There was a serpent in the garden of Eden. You say, where did the serpent come from? God made him. Where, how did he become evil? I don't know. And guess what? You don't either. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and that's a secret thing. And some philosophers can try to explain to you where evil comes from, but they don't know. They're all speculating. Some Christians can try to tell you that they know for sure where evil came from. They don't know. They're completely speculating. So what we see in the Bible is, uh, gentlemen, we simply receive what we have, and that is we have evil, and we receive what the Bible reveals to us, and that is we don't know where it came from. All we know is that God controls it now. So God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and in his ordination, he permitted the entrance of evil that he did not cause. It's completely irrational. Here's the way my theology professor put it 35 years ago. He said that if you could explain where evil comes from, it wouldn't be as evil as it is. The very fact that you can't explain where it comes from shows you how irrational, how evil, how contrary to everything that we know is good, evil is. And so, we can't explain it. And he said, of course it's irrational. If God says to you, you can have anything in this entire universe you want, just don't eat of this one tree. You can eat anything you want. You have full control uh, uh, under me over the entire universe, just don't eat of this tree. And then you say, hey, let to go eat of that tree. Does that make any sense? It's completely irrational. Who in their right mind would rebel against the sovereign God? It's, it's crazy. Nobody can come up with a plausible explanation for that. That's evil. It makes no sense. And the Bible doesn't try to make it make sense. It makes no sense. So, God ordained it in this sense, he allowed the entrance of it, but he's not the cause of it. Now you say, would you please give me an illustration of this? Well, just look at Job. You've already got the devil, he's there, he's already there, no explanation. The devil comes before God, and God says to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And we're sitting there thinking, you mean God actually suggests to the devil that he should wreak havoc on one of God's servants? Well, he did in this case. And then you remember the devil complains and says, why should I mess around with Job? He's one of your boys, and you're not going to let me do anything to him. And God takes up the challenge and says, okay, you can have everything except his soul. And the devil goes to work. And of course, we know the end of the story. We have some knowns that were unknown to Job. Job had no idea what was going on when he lost all of his children, all of his wealth, and all of his health. And all he was left with were three nagging friends and a nagging wife. That's all he had left. No one, he could not understand what's going on. We can understand because we have it in Job, we have it in the Bible. And we now know what was going on. God was proving not only to Satan, but to all of the heavenly hosts the power of his grace when he saves someone because he was showing satan and all of the powers that when he saves a man he will not turn his back on god no matter what he won't curse god and the whole point of job was he never cursed god he never he said yet will though he slay me yet will i trust him that was job's testimony and then he said you know one day i shall see god in my flesh i shall see god that wonderful pre-Christ resurrection account. I will see God in my flesh. That was Job. That was the glory of God that was being displayed in a broken world. Job had no way of knowing what was really going on behind the scenes. It was God challenging all of the hosts in heaven and hell to show that one of his men would turn his back on him. That was the drama. So, God, was in, God didn't create evil, but evil being here, he takes complete control over it. There was not one thing that Satan could do to Job without the permission of God. And Job could not touch his soul and could not turn him ultimately away from God. Why? Because God said so. So in the evil today, as evil as it is and as heartbreaking as it is, God has a constraint on it. And the constraint is he is actually orchestrating all things, including the evil in this world, to bring about the good that he has ordained for his people. And we can't be expected to understand it, but we are to trust him because that's his word. So you have it in Job, you certainly have it in Lamentations, there where you see that Jeremiah says, when Jerusalem's been completely destroyed, not one stone upon another, pregnant women having children ripped out of their wombs and destroyed, just all kinds of terrible evil going on. And Jeremiah says, shall we accept good from God and not evil? Jeremiah knew quite well that God had ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He had put himself under the sovereignty of God and he knew that when bad, horrible Terrible things were happening. That it was under the sovereign hand of God and he belonged to God and he trusted God to bring out a successful outcome. I tell you, there are many ministers in churches in this community who will tell you at a funeral that God had nothing to do with it. It's an abject lie. And it's a denial of the character of God in the Bible. Some things you don't know. This you know. God works all things together. It's his business. And frankly, I don't want to live in a world that God doesn't completely control. I do not want to live in an out-of-control world. And yes, I am scorched by the evil just like you are. I'm absolutely flummoxed sometimes by the level of evil when I see an abused child or a hungry child in some part of the world. And I'm going, what is this all about? I don't understand this. Of course, there's a sense of outrage in my own heart, but I know this, that God works all things together and he works them together for the good of his people. So God is sovereign. The Bible teaches us that in in fact, the worst evil ever performed by the hands of men was to destroy the Messiah on Calvary's cross. That was the greatest injustice ever performed by men. And in Acts 2.23, you'll see it was by the set foreknowledge of God. It was by His set purpose from all eternity that the worst evil was perpetrated. So please, don't try to let God off the hook. When you think you're letting Him off the hook, you're making Him less than God. So keep God as God and keep the mystery where it belongs. And there's a great mystery to evil. And there's a great mystery as to why it keeps going on. It is a mystery. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our sons and our daughters. You keep what is revealed. So God is sovereign over all things. Now, some truths that we know about providence, and technically speaking, what this verse is talking about is providence. Providence, see, in the work of God, You have his eternal decree before anything ever existed, before he ever created anything in his mind from all eternity, he decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Then in space and time, he exercises his his sovereignty in the following ways. First of all, he creates. So he decreed creation and then he spoke and it came to be. So he created. The second thing that he did was he maintains it and governs it. That's called providence. So in the work of God, you have the mind of God in his, his eternal decree, and then you have the work of God. And the work of God is creation and providence. And in his providence, things having been created by word of his mouth, he now governs everything, every blade of grass, everything. He governs it. That's the doctrine of providence, and that's what Paul's talking about here. And this verse, of course, ends up being one of the favorite verses of so many people around the world. Romans eight twenty-eight, because it shows us the providence of God. He's in charge of everything. Now, some truths that we know about providence. First of all, God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's what we've been talking about. But look with me at Proverbs nineteen twenty-one, for example. There's just there are, there. are so many examples in the Bible. I just picked out a, a a few of them that we might look at. But in Proverbs nineteen twenty-one, this is page eleven sixty-eight. Solomon says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So the plans of powerful men are not going to thwart the plans of God. That's what Solomon is saying. And we don't know the full plan of God. All we know is the plan that he's revealed. For example, we know that one day Jesus Christ is coming back in all of his glory and he will glorify us, his his saints. We know that because it's revealed, but between here and that, we don't know all the details. But in His providence, we know that He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, you can look at a, Ephesians 1:11, for example, and here's another classic statement about His foreordination in verse eleven of Ephesians one. In his, this is page twenty two sixty three, in Him. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. You and I look for counsel all the time. I get counsel every day. I need counsel. I want the opinions of other men. I want help. Who's God's counsel? God. God. So he works all things together according to the infinitely wise counsel of his own will. That's what he does. That's his job. That's his work, is to govern all things. So he foreordains, he decrees it, he determines it before it happens. Now, we'll come to some of the intellectual and philosophical problems with this in just a moment. Secondly, God is the first cause who sustains second causes. You pick this up in the Confession of Faith that we just read, where he says, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. What are second causes? Well, gravity. There's a cause, gravity. God establishes gravity. He sustains gravity by his decree. We have gravity because of God's decree. He's the one who set it up that way. So in other words, His decree does not violate the predictability of gravity unless, of course, he wants to suspend it, which on on occasion he does. And so in his providence, if he wants to do something miraculous and sustain natural cause and effect, he has the right to do that. If he wants to call Lazarus out of the grave, he can do it. And that suspends natural cause and effect. But normally, in normal times, he's the one who's sustaining natural cause. Let me give you an example. In, in 10 seconds, God has foreordained that this piece of paper is going to drop. Unless I drop first, I guess. That could happen because I don't know everything. But in four seconds, it's going to drop. And the reason that it drops is God ordained it. But you notice it also dropped because I was making an illustration of what I'm talking about with my motivation to try to explain how God's decree includes the free exercise of men's will. That's exactly how he does it. So he put it on my mind to illustrate to you to drop that piece of paper and he decreed it from all eternity, but it didn't take away from me, my decision making to drop the paper. You say, that's amazing, exactly. Do you wanna know how mysterious, how powerful, how intricate The providence of God is. It's even controlling the things that you freely do. That's jaw-dropping amazing. How great God's providence is. It includes the decisions of men. And it includes secondary causes, what we call nature, natural history, scientific laws. All of it is included under his providence. It's God ruling over his universe, and sustaining it nanosecond by nanosecond, executing his infinite and divine and eternal decree. That's what the Bible teaches us in the places I've already shown you and in other places. So God is the first cause, but he sustains secondary causes. And we'll come back to that when we talk about evangelism or prayer or other secondary causes in the spiritual realm. God's the first cause of everything, including who his children are. But that doesn't mean that he eliminates secondary causes. No, he sustains secondary causes, including the acts of men. Now, uh, thirdly, notice that God's providence includes all evil without being the cause of evil. We've already covered that point. Now, secondly, notice in this verse that not only is God sovereign over all things, including evil, but God works all things for the good of his people. God is governing everything for your good if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now that's an amazing thing so that you know that the deity is orchestrating everything in the planets and the galaxies and the universes to bring about good for you, even though you can't see it. And sometimes we can't. Notice some additional truths then that we learn about providence. Fourthly, that God sovereignly uses all evil in and upon our lives ultimately to bless us. God sovereignly uses all evil in and upon our lives ultimately to bless us. So you may have something terrible happening in your life. Something that's actually unjust and sinful against you that's happening. And here's what this biblical doctrine teaches us. That God works together all things, including the terrible things, for the good of His people. You say, well, when am I going to find out how this works? You may have to wait until you go to heaven. In fact, you, most things you will. You just, you, there's not enough time nor understanding in this life for you to grasp it all. You're just simply being commanded to believe and trust in the revealed Word of God, that He is working all things together for your good. You say, could you give me an illustration of that? I'm glad you asked. I mentioned there Genesis 45. You remember that Joseph was treated terribly by his brothers, almost murdered, but not murdered eventually, sold into slavery to be forgotten forever. And the brothers took back his robe of many colors that was torn up, covered with blood, and told his daddy that he had been eaten by an animal. Wicked, wicked, wicked. Talk about the hurt and sense of betrayal, that your own brothers did this to you and sold you off in slavery to Egypt. Well, you know what happens, of course. Joseph, by God's providence, and Joseph was very aware. He lived his whole life very aware of God's providence in his life. And Joseph eventually, as you know, was elevated to prime minister in Egypt. Amazing story. And when famine takes place in the Holy Land, Jacob sends his sons to go get some grain. You know the story. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers because he has to. And we won't go into that today. And they realize the prime minister of Egypt, who's been speaking their language and pretended as though he didn't know Hebrew and had a translator there, this man, High and lofty, most powerful man in the world next to Pharaoh is none other than the brother they had abused. They're in deep weeds, and they know it. And you remember what Joseph says, don't worry. What you intended for evil, and you did, God used for good. And Joseph had to interpret for them. Joseph was the believer in God and His sovereign providence. And Joseph said, It's through the evil that you perpetrated that God brought me here so there would be food for my family. And he sets them up in the land of Goshen so that they can survive and eventually flourish and then be ready to be brought back to the Holy Land. Joseph was very aware of that. Well, you'll find the same story with Paul when he was in prison in Rome. And the Philippians one of those tender, missionary-hearted churches that supported him were very concerned about Paul, so much so they sent a Epaphroditus 600 miles by foot to take supplies to him in the Roman prison. And Paul writes back to them and he says, hey, folks, this is great. I'm in prison. And because I'm in prison, the whole Praetorian Guard now knows the gospel because they've been changed, chained to me hand and foot on four-hour rotations, and I've got a, a captive audience. They can't get away. I've been evangelizing the daylights out of them, and a lot of them have become Christians. And further all, furthermore, even though other Christian preachers now are preaching on the street so they'll get me in more trouble because they're jealous, you know what God is doing with that? He's getting the gospel preached on the streets like never before. So Paul, instead of just curling up into a fetal position and you know, taking umbrage at the fact that fellow preachers were trying to get him in more trouble or that God himself had betrayed him by putting him in prison after preaching so faithfully for 30 years. He was delighting in what? The providence of God. And because Paul believed that God works together, as Paul wrote here, all things for the good of his people, Paul then had eyes to see some of the good that God was working out. Now, God was working out other good that Paul couldn't even see. Like, for example, the fact that we get the letters because Paul was slowed down and put in prison, so he had to write because he couldn't preach anymore. There are all kinds of good that Paul wouldn't even be aware of, but he could see that. And the reason he could see it, he was looking for it because he believed that the sovereign deity was working everything out in the universe for the good of his children. Paul believed it with all of his heart. So then he could notice the little things and sometimes the big things. What are you noticing in your illness? What are you noticing in your tragedies? What are you noticing in your pain? What are you looking for? Paul was looking for the hand of God. And he said, look, we know something. Base your life on what you know that you know. So he says... God sovereignly uses all evil in our lives ultimately to bless us. Now, notice, I guess the last thing I want to say about providence is that we have to say that God sovereignly uses all evil in and upon the lives of the reprobate to condemn them. All you have to do is look back in Romans 2, verses 5 and 6, and Paul says, Uh, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, speaking of the evil, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And Peter in 1 Peter 2 speaks of the destiny of the reprobate to be destroyed. So, you see, God doesn't work all things together for the good of every human being regardless of their relationship to Him. The fact is, for those who will not be His children, everything's working together for the bad. And every day that they live, is just more judgment that's being piled up for them because more sins that they've committed without a Savior. So we have an enormous privilege when we come to Christ. Not only does the decline cease, but we're on the incline. And we're just piling up good that God is planning for us. Uh, for all eternity. Now, notice thirdly, not only is God sovereign over all things and God works all things for the good of his people, but God has called his people for his purpose. You see how he puts it in Romans 8 28, he says, For those who are called according to his purpose. God has called us with a specific purpose in mind, he hasn't called us just simply to luxuriate in our privileges. He's called us for a set purpose. He puts it this way in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He calls us to a holy life. He calls us to imitate the Savior. That's the reason that we've been set apart. Now, When we look at verses 29 and 30, we'll see that we not only know that all things work together for the good in His providence, but we know that we are predestined, verses 29 and 30. He says in 29 and 30, "...for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." So he's saying, look, we know that he's working all things together for good because we know this, that he has predestined us to be the firstborn among many brothers. So we know we are predestined. Now now let's look at verse 29a and look at the basis of predestination. It is foreknowledge. The basis of predestination is foreknowledge. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, some take the meaning of foreknowledge here to mean, uh, another word for it would be prescience or pre-science. If I pronounce it that way, it's prescience. That means the word, the, the prefix pre means before. Science means knowledge. So I have knowledge before. I'm prescient. I know something ahead of time. Or I have prescience. I have previous knowledge of something that's going to happen a lot of people will look at this word here and say that God predestines based upon his prescience. Now, God does have prescience. He does have that kind of foreknowledge. He can look through the quarters of time and tell you exactly what's going to happen. And of course, the reason he can do that is because he's decreed exactly what's going to happen. So he knows what he's planned. And it's going to happen as he planned it. But he does have prescience. But this is not what this word means. And I've given you several references here. You can look in Genesis 18, Jeremiah 1, Amos 3, in the Old Testament, which, of course, is where the semantic fields for most words come from, from the apostles. They're working normally with an Old Testament vocabulary. And the word knowledge in the Old Testament means to have intimate knowledge of something or somebody. So, for example, Adam knows Eve. And that's not some uh, way to uh, get around using sexually explicit language. That is sexually explicit language, that Adam knows Eve. And when you come to something like uh, in the text I mentioned here with Amos or Jeremiah, you have Jeremiah and Amos talking about God, knowing us, knowing Jeremiah even before he's born. What does he mean? That he loves him, that he for love does. That's what foreknowledge means in the Old Testament. That's the way Paul means it here. And we'll see it's consistent with everything that he's saying in these two verses in just a moment. But rather than just being prescient, he is actually loving you before you exist. It's for love. That's what that foreknowledge is. So his predestination is based on his loving you before you and space and time even existed. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that his predestination is based on himself. It's not based on anything else of himself. He's not coerced, he's not manipulated, nobody does a deal with him. He's not waiting to look down the corridors of time and see what your little sovereign self is gonna do and then predestinate you, which is what prescient uh, predestinarians say is happening. That's not what's happening. That's a denial of what Paul says is happening. What Paul says is happening is his predestination is his eternal decree based upon his eternal love for you before you existed. So it's based on foreknowledge. Now, the goal of predestination is conformity to Christ. You see this here, and you see it clearly in Ephesians. You see it in 2 Thessalonians that we are predestined for this purpose, to conform to the image of his son. What does he predestine you for? To be like Jesus Christ. That's the reason that we look forward to glory because Jesus Christ has been glorified. What's the father's purpose in predestination? That he be the firstborn among many brothers. He's just the first in gathering of the harvest. There's a huge harvest that's coming with glorified children of God, that's you. That's what you're predestined for. So the predestination tells us it's predestiny. That is, I know my destiny before I get there. That's what predestination is. God predetermines your destiny before you get there. And then he says to you, I'm telling you what it is. You say, why would he do such a thing? We'll get to that in a moment. Now, the end of predestination is glory. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is called the golden chain. We're predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And so you could could say, all those who are predestined are called. No one's left out. All of those that are in the eternal decree of God, they all get called. Now this word calling here clearly is not just the external calling that you hear in your ear, the calling of the gospel. This calling is what we call the internal calling, the effectual calling, the the infallible calling. Just like when God calls the world to be, it comes into being. When God calls Paul to be an apostle, he becomes an apostle. When God calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he comes out of the tomb. This is that kind of calling it's effectual, it never fails. All those who are predestined, every one of them, are effectually called. If you want to know who's being internally, effectually, infallibly called, it's all the ones that God predestined from all eternity. And then Paul says, those who were called, effectually called, every single one of them are justified. And that's the reason we know this calling is effectual calling because a lot of people hear the external calling of the gospel, but they're not justified. They don't believe. So the chain is clearly speaking about one set of people, predestined, effectually called, justified, and then he says they're as good as glorified. He puts it in the past tense that we've already been glorified. Why does he put it in the past tense? Because it's just as done as your justification is which is Paul's point in Romans 5.1. If we've been justified, we have peace with God. It's done. You've been justified through faith. You have been guaranteed your glorification. It's called the golden chain. Now, some of you are aware of Franz Schubert, 1822, 8th Symphony in B minor. You don't know it by that title. You know it by the title, The Unfinished Symphony. He wrote two movements, and then people, scholars, have been trying to figure out what arrested his development there. I mean, of course, we all know he got syphilis in 1822. That'll put a you know, little hitch in your get along. But <laughs> we don't know why he, he didn't finish that symphony. It's just called the unfinished symphony. It's beautiful. It's a romantic symphony. And people say, oh, I'd love to have the third movement of that symphony. Let me tell you something. God composes no unfinished symphonies. What he has begun, he brings to completion. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about him, there's no stopping this God. When he predestines his people, he doesn't make a plan and change his plans. He doesn't get out there and start working on it and say, man, it's a lot harder than I thought. These people are more stubborn than I ever imagined. I'm not sure I can win these people. And he, he doesn't wring his hands. Gentlemen, when he decrees that something will be done, it gets done, and he has decreed the glorification of his saints. It's done. It's an amazing God and amazing salvation. Now, lastly, we only have a minute and a half. Common objections, doesn't predestination make human, humans mere robots? The answer is no. Uh, we have to go fast here. If predestination is true, why should we evangelize or pray for the lost? Because he doesn't undo secondary causes, but rather sustains them. And he works out his decree through evangelism and through prayer. And so are you not going to evangelize and not pray because you don't have the power of God sovereignly to have your own will done? So now you're not going to pray and evangelize even though he commands you to because he wants to use you as his secondary causes and bring about his decree. Shame on you. Doesn't the doctrine of predestination make God into a monster who is insensitive to human suffering? All I would say is look at the cross of Calvary. He predestinated that from all eternity that his son would die a gruesome death for your sake. You think he's insensitive? You think he's a monster? He's the most loving being ever conceived and the most loving being ever in existence. Now, why is the doctrine of predestination important? Here's why. Number one, the glory of God. Predestination puts God on the throne where he belongs. And he's not going to compromise his glory nor his power with you. He didn't consult with you when he decided how to create. And believe me, he's not consulting with you when he decides how to govern the universe. And predestination puts him on the throne where he belongs. It exalts him. Secondly, it puts us where we belong. We're not only creatures, gentlemen, completely dependent upon the deity, but we're rebellious creatures. And we're not only rebellious creatures, but we are forgiven, redeemed, rebellious creatures. And we have no power to decree anything. We can't even say what we're going to do tomorrow, says James, and you better say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this and that tomorrow. You have no power over it. So let's put you where you belong as a completely dependent, unworthy, and undeserving creature of God. That's what predestination does for you. Thirdly, the assurance of salvation. You say, can we lose our salvation? Not if the golden chain is true, you can't lose your salvation. Luther said, as you read in Stott, predestination is a wonderfully sweet thing for those who have the Spirit. So predestination assures us It says to us, if you've received Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in him, if you've come into Christ, there's only one reason that happens. Because you are the object of God's plan. And what he has begun, he will bring to completion. And you can live this life boldly and confidently. And that's the reason the doctrine is revealed. He could have predestined us and not told us a thing about it, but he's telling you all about it so that you'll live in the light of it with the confidence and assurance. And that's what Romans 8 is all about, is assurance and confidence. And I wouldn't be confident if this is some type of conditional predestination that depends upon my behavior. If it does, I'm damned because my behavior always screws up everything. But what Paul is saying, is, in the hands of God and you can rest and trust Him. And lastly, it's the motive to worship and service. Some say predestination takes away our motive for evangelism and prayer. Oh, no, it's just the opposite. Do you know what kind of God we serve? He is the only one true and living God who controls everything. And in his control, he's working everything together for his children. And he invites the world to be his children. What a message we have to proclaim. What a motive we have to go into all the world. So let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for keeping secret the things that should be kept secret for our sakes as children. Thank you for revealing the things that need to be revealed for our strengthening as children. Help us to leave the secret things with the Lord our God and to cherish the things that are revealed for us and our children that we may do all of the revealed will of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.